Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Ajra Raza. She is the Chan Soon Xiong Professor of Medicine and Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University. She is an oncologist, seeing 30 to 40 cancer patients every week and directs a cutting-edge basic cancer research lab with hundreds of original publications in high-profile journals. She's the author of two books, the first, Gallup, Epistemologies of Elegance, and the second, which she's here to talk to us about today, The First Cell and the Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. Ajra, welcome to Science for the People. It is lovely to have you. Thank you, Rochelle. An honor to be on. You're a researcher and a doctor. Can you give our audience a really quick summary on your focuses in your research and your patient work? I have a third bit of credential, which could be important. I am an oncologist who sees 30 to 40 patients. As you said, I also direct a basic research lab. And I'm also a cancer widow, which means that I have had the chance to see cancer from both sides of the bed as the caregiver and as the wife of a world-class cancer researcher, my husband, who got the very disease he was trying to cure. So I came to this country, America, in 1977, completely dedicated already to do research and to treat patients with acute myeloid leukemia, a form of bone marrow cancer. Uh, which uh, I began to study and treat. By 1984, it was apparent to me that given the complexity of the disease in my lifetime, it's unlikely that it will be cured. But many of my patients were giving history of having had low blood counts or anemia six months to a year or sometimes even longer before they actually were diagnosed with leukemia. And these states The pre-leukemic syndromes are called myelodysplastic syndromes. And so back in 1984, Rochelle, I made the decision that we have to catch the disease at its earlier stage so that it's not as complicated and the molecular genetic lesions are not that far advanced that we cannot do anything about them. Um, So I turned my attention towards simultaneously studying the pre-leukemic syndromes, which are called myelodysplastic syndromes. So myelodysplastic syndromes is a malignant disease which can kill by itself, but a third of the patients can develop acute myeloid leukemia. This is what I have been doing since 1984. I'm entirely focused on and obsessively focused, I should say, on studying and treating patients with MDS, following them through the natural history of their disease, and uh, studying them serially and sequentially as the disease goes through um, its progression. Your book is an intense mixture of information on the current state of cancer research and a visceral experience of what late stage cancer is like for the patient, for their friends and family and for their doctor. Um, Some people would have written just an emotional book on the experience, and others would have written a kind of hyper-factual and emotionally detached book focusing on the current state of the research. Why did you decide to combine them? I think the subtitle of my book is equally important as the title. The subtitle is The Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. In other words, I wanted to look at everything we are doing in cancer through the prism of human anguish. It is not an indifferent science. Here we are dealing with individuals 
who are facing a very challenging disease. In fact, it was a stigma to have cancer for the longest time. because uh, it is so difficult to treat it seems to bring seems to bring a death sentence the only good thing you can say about cancer is oh but it was caught early so it's treatable everyone knows that so my question after 43 years of being in this country and studying and treating the same disease with the same two drugs that i was using in 1977 i'm using in 2019 to treat acute myeloid leukemia the two drugs popularly known as 7 and 3 because we give 7 days of one and 3 days of another now think about my mental state having to repeat the same conversation over and over for 43 years and despite myself trying so hard to improve the outcome of patients with the same dreadful results this is what has made me very sober about where we are going and made me examine not just the science part but to see why the science has drifted so far away from the human part one thing i found both major book more compelling and also at times harder to read was how upfront you are in describing the lived experience of late stage cancer patients both from their cancer and from their treatments i think even though cancer is something that touches a lot of people the actual impact isn't well understood i mean we know it's bad and we know chemotherapy is bad but your book was a huge eye opener for me on the realities and the experience of cancer thank you rochelle uh, because this is what i have felt uh, two things that really i have felt all along is that one we are not appreciating in all of its granularity the pain and suffering that go with the diagnosis of cancer of course for the patient but then also for the families around and the second is that somehow the language that we have used the manner in which we announce the discoveries in cancer the kind of smoke and mirror approach we have been using we are giving the public a general impression that things are hunky dory things are improving great advances are being made in cancer treatment i admit that there are great advances but and one of the best uh, reasons to celebrate is that we are now curing 68% of the cancers diagnosed today are cured not just that uh, there is a 1% decline in mortality from cancer for the last 30 years that means that uh, 30% decrease in mortality from cancer that sounds wonderful but if you look closely 1% decline in mortality from cancer every year why has that happened the 30% decline total overall not because we have found some grand new drugs or magic bullets to treat this disease but only for mainly for two reasons one the anti smoking campaign that was started 50 years ago began to show dividends and benefits and two because of early detection we are finding cancers earlier and earlier and treating them and doing that 68% are being cured but using what using the same slash poison burn approach and the 32% who are diagnosed with advanced disease today rachel their outcome is basically no better than it was 50 years ago so when my oncology colleagues stand in national meetings and thump their chests 
with pride that they have accomplished so much i tend to feel sad about it because what have we really achieved if we are still using the paleolithic stone age treatments we were using 50 years ago this chemotherapy does not distinguish a cell which is cancerous from a normal cell it's like a sledgehammer it's like taking a baseball bat to a dog to get rid of its fleas your book's primary argument is that the way we approach cancer research now is expensive for us all and isn't working um i, I want to unpack some of the context there in particular for our audience who is science savvy and knows broadly how and why science research is done the way it is because your arguments i think will challenge some closely held ideals around how research should be done in particular for our audience so can you give us an overview of the way cancer research is generally really done today first um just kind of a high level of of what cancer research looks like generally in 1971 president nixon declared war on cancer in the united states and billions of dollars since then have gone into support cancer research our understanding of the molecular and genetic underpinnings of cancer are dramatically improved we can justifiably pat ourselves on the back with the great achievements in this area the problem is that not much of it has been translated into improved treatments so let's start with 70s when the money started pouring in we discovered oncogenes very rapidly it was uh, found that there are a lot of uh, uh, oncogenes present uh, which means that cancer causing genes which are present in the human body but that did not materialize into giving us a better uh, target for treatment then we were interested in um, studying for example in the 1990s uh, choking off blood supply to the cancers and that was felt to be a very important area um, it cured a lot of mice but it didn't do very much when the, these drugs that uh, target the blood uh, supply were brought to the bedside uh, next we pinned our hopes on the human genome project and its sequencing and we kept thinking that when that happens we will have better targets unfortunately it's now 20 years later and the targeted therapies have been developed have been tried and tested and sadly most of them help only a fraction of patients for a limited amount of time none of them are curative there's a lot being talked about regarding cellular therapies using the body's own immune system immune cells to find and kill the cancer cells this area for example uh, one type of therapy in this particular area is very popular and highly talked about and um was the basis of the nobel prize justifiably and uh, very correctly given to dr james allison and the his counterpart in japan for development of uh, this type of immune therapy and it has produced some great responses but in a very small number of patients the reason is that even this magical therapy which i have to say again and again is one of the grand accomplishments of humanity to be able to engineer the body's own t cells which are a form of immune cells 
um, in such a way that they are activated and they are precisely made to attack a certain kind of cell which is expressing a receptor that it recognizes but nowhere do researchers who are talking about this kind of cell therapy nowhere do they mention that even this fantastic approach to treatment cannot differentiate between normal and cancer cells so it goes and kills the whole organ for example the only thing we can use it for in the last 8 9 years since it's uh, been used is b cell which are also a form of immune cells in the body b cell cancers whether they are lymphomas or acute lymphocytic leukemia why because b cells can all be killed in the body whether they are normal or cancer and then we can replace the b cell function by giving immunoglobulins for the rest of the life to the patients but if you use the same approach to kill the whole liver because the liver had cancer it would kill every liver cancer cell but also every normal liver cell then you can't replace the liver you can't replace the kidneys you can't replace uh for example the um gi tract so all of this science that has gone in you ask me what is the history well uh the history is that we focus on one area most of the scientists start uh, working in that area so it was oncogenes or then it was uh, angiogenesis followed by sequencing of the human genome and now the immune therapies are being talked about all the time and there have been advances in all of these areas i nowhere in the book do i say that there are no advances they are incremental they are not enough they are not curative they still don't distinguish between the two so where do we go from here that's the question i'm asking if we continue the same old same old and keep insisting that no this is the right way to go then where will we we be in 50 years from now or 10 years from now One of the themes in your book is that we are focusing still too much on the late stages of cancer. Um and that definitely comes out uh quite strongly uh, as I was reading. Um so why is there so much research that is focusing on late stage treatment options and there seems to be comparatively less that is focusing on preventative treatment or early treatment? I wouldn't say that I the the thing i'm talking about when i say late stages is the price we pay by going after the late stages mm-hmm. actually we are focusing on early cancers mm-hmm. my idea is not an original idea and the 68% cancers we are curing today are all because of early stage cancer mm-hmm. but using the same old treatments why are we still giving chemotherapy or why are we cutting off women's breasts so why are we radiating and causing so much damage why haven't we developed the techniques to diagnose cancer even at an earlier stage where we don't need these draconian measures that are required in this end and then the end stage monstrosity that is presented by 32% of the patients most of our resources go in research towards trying to find some solution for those individuals now i absolutely admit that we have cancer patients today we need to worry about them we need to keep investing in developing better therapies for them and if you ask me rachelle if i have acute myeloid leukemia what would i do today would i take the chemotherapy i have been giving since 1977 or not my answer is yes 
I will take it also because there is a 24% chance that I will be alive at five years with that chemotherapy. The question is, why is that the only uh, thing being offered? Why is that the only choice I would have? And why is that terrible choice being repeatedly given and how to do better going forward? So yes, I think that there has been uh, concentration on early detection but not enough. We need more resources. We need now that more technology has become available. We need to have a completely different approach. Are there some ideas out there about what type of approaches we should be focusing more on than we are now? Well, to begin with, we have to get away from the reductionist approach that has been always used. In the beginning, we felt that uh, there would be one gene producing one abnormal protein that can be targeted with one magic bullet and we'll find a cure. And lo and behold, it turned out to be correct because uh, right after this approach was started, we did discover that in a very lethal, potentially lethal and aggressive kind of leukemia that evolved from uh, something called chronic myeloid leukemia, which can become acute and was a universally fatal illness, it was found that this particular type of leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia or CML, is caused by one genetic de defect and the drug imatinib that was developed to target that cured it. So, is basically curing it now. And this was a great success, but then it also has put our field back by 20 years because basically everyone assumed then that each cancer would have the same one problem, one treatment um, kind of issue. And all we have to do is find the gene that has malfunctioned in pancreatic cancer or lung cancer and target it. It turned out that there is a tsunami of genetic mutations in most other cancers that they're not caused by one. And if you think about chronic myeloid leukemia, the same drug imatinib, which is curing chronic myeloid leukemia patients today, is useless when the disease advances to even an accelerated phase or an acute phase. So, in other words, you are catching that leukemia earliest form in the chronic phase and treating it right there. That's what I was hoping to do with MDS and treat it at the MDS stage and not, not let it develop into acute myeloid leukemia. Unfortunately, it turned out for me that MDS by itself is a very can be a very malignant and very complex disease and there is no single genetic abnormality that can be targeted like in chronic myeloid leukemia so that has been really the issue that we are uh, we have used a kind of reductionist approach so what should be the next step the next step is Let's get away from trying to find cancers by using ancient technology. In this day and age of imaging and scanning techniques that are so efficient and so superb, we have to be able to develop uh, better ways of finding early cancers. And what I'm saying is, instead of using a reductionist approach, trying to find one gene, let's go for a pluralistic approach, which means study whole cells that are cancerous, their RNA, their DNA, their protein, their metabolites that they are producing, study them repeatedly, study them in all kinds of secretions, blood, sweat, tears, uh, urine, stool, everywhere. Essentially, treat the human body as 
Dr. Sam Gambir from the Canary Cancer Center at Stanford says, treat the human body as if it is a machine and constantly monitor it for the appearance of the footprints of cancer. This is what we need to do, have a really uh, pluralistic approach using not one test to diagnose cancer early like a mammogram or a colonoscopy or a PSA, but rather using all the latest sophisticated things, even if it means 200 points of information need to be generated. That's what we have to generate and that's how we will find cancer before it becomes clinically established. I remember reading through the book and it, I sort of knew this already, but I felt like I didn't really appreciate it in the same way I do now, um, which is your analogy of seed and soil with cancer and also the idea that cancer is so complex and so different from person to person that one of the biggest challenges uh, for treatments, especially once cancer gets into its later stages, is that it, it different treatments work for different people or mostly don't work for different people. And we aren't actually doing a great job in tracking what treatments might be better for what types of people with this quote unquote same cancers. And that I found really surprising that we're not trying to figure out which of treatments that maybe have a 20% efficacy rate are more likely to work for which 20% of people, if that makes sense. I found that really surprising that we're not doing a better job of of tracking and trying to at least target some of those treatments better. Completely unconscionable. Imagine that we are doing clinical trials today, more than 90% clinical trials that are done today for cancer are done in the same exact way that they were done in 1977. Just give a drug to everybody, see the 30% who respond and get the drug approved without making any attempt to try and understand who are these 30% who responded and why. And why aren't the institutions who are supposed to protect us not doing anything to demand that sponsors of those trials make some attempt to understand? Because imagine when you give the drug to 100 patients, 70 will not respond, which means they are getting the drug for no reason at all. They are going to be physically and financially suffering all the toxicity that comes along with no benefit at all for the sake of the 30% who will benefit for a short time, basically months. So I know experimental trials are uh, a very, it's how a lot of medicine is done. Um, and in particular with cancer, it feels like a lot of people are more willing to jump into experimental trials of all types, because like you say, there's this mixture of hope and despair. You, you'll try just about anything because you want to you want to keep living. Um, but there, there are often challenges there because patients who are selected for experimental trials aren't necessarily representative of the types of patients who are more likely to get uh, these kinds of cancers. And so you end up with kind of sometimes skewed results in these trials that when you take those treatments that even appear to have maybe a 30% efficacy, which isn't great, but I guess it's something, and then move them into a general population, you find even like smaller numbers because you, it's just the, the, the trial groups just aren't reflective of the actual population who, who's experiencing these, these diseases. Absolutely right. And 
let's not forget that 95%, 95% of cancer experimental trials fail today. The 5% that succeed, in my opinion, should have failed because they are only prolonging survival by a few months for a fraction of patients and causing financial ruin completely in 42% patients diagnosed in America with cancer today by two plus years or have lost every penny of their life savings. For what? Do you think the US system of kind of hyper focusing on treatment in later stages of cancer when it's paid by insurance? I mean, I I have, I'm not personally an American or live in the US, but I do have some friends in the US who I know forego preventative medicine or visiting a doctor until, until they absolutely have to because of the way the healthcare system is in the US. I'm curious how much you think this is a potential artifact of the expensive insurance system in the US and the way that's been set up. And if that, if you think that has any, any influence on why we still kind of hyper focus in a bit on treating late stage or going to a doctor so late. I don't think so, Rochelle. I have to be very honest. I think that the American system is still the very best system in the world. And we are the leaders in the field in most areas in cancer research also. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the reason that we can treat uh, end-stage patients is because we are affluent enough and can afford it, but not for long. Mm. That's what I'm saying. So it is still the best system and the whole world looks to America for leadership. Where is our leadership now? If we are going to develop therapies like CAR-T therapy that costs a million dollars per patient, which is good for a few thousand patients compared to 1.7 million diagnosed in a year, then the whole healthcare system will become uh, bankrupt and is on the verge of a collapse by having to support few of these expensive therapies. So right now, that's what's happening. I'm asking for a paradigm shift, at least for the future. Let us imagine and envision a better future. You know, a lot of my colleagues will point uh, this thing to me and say, Azra, we are all looking at the same thing, but we are looking at the glass half uh, full and you're looking at the glass half empty. I don't agree with that, Rochelle, because I'm looking at the whole glass. I want to see all of cancer treatment. I am not denying all the advances. I'm not denying that we have cured 68% patients. I'm asking how can we do better? That's all. Very simple. Not just for the 32% who are dying terrible deaths, but also the 68% who are being cured. How can we do better by them also? One in two men and one in three women will get cancer. In in, These are today's statistics. Why do we have to either receive slash poison burn to live or die a terrible death with uh, with useless therapies? Can you talk a little bit about your MDS and AML tissue repository and some of the challenges you've had around getting funding to pursue research with this repository? That is a question that is really close to my heart. So back in 1984, uh, when I decided to study pre-leukemia myelodysplastic syndrome, being an immigrant has helped me because had I gone to school in this country, my next step would have been to make a mouse model for studying myelodysplastic syndrome. But coming from Pakistan, um, I depended on 
instinct rather than on custom and tradition. And my instinct told me that if I want to study this disease, I should have cells from the patients. I started banking cells back in 1984. Today, the tissue repository that I have uh, houses over 60,000 samples from thousands of patients with MDS who have progressed in their disease and either gone and died of MDS or are still living or have evolved into acute myeloid leukemia. These samples are extremely precious because they trace the natural history of the disease from pre-leukemic stage to acute leukemia or pre-leukemic stage to a stage where it becomes viciously uh, malignant and kills the patient. We have serial samples on them. On the other hand, we have all the technology that has evolved, whether we want to uh, look for rare cells by using technologies of uh, of uh, uh, liquid biopsies, by looking at a whole tube of blood and finding one abnormal malignant cell through. We are working with the Pasteur Institute, Professor Patrizia Petrolini, um, to find this kind of circulating rare tumor cell. Then we can also look at uh, RNA, DNA, proteins. We can look at metabolites, biomarkers. We have all kinds of samples stored. So the technology has been evolved. The tissue is available. The resources are what is needed. The resources to apply all the latest technology to so many compartments and to study them at all simultaneously in a few thousand patients and then subject the data to machine learning and artificial intelligence for analysis and come up with the biomarkers, the signatures, the combinations of tests that are needed to find the earliest footprint of cancer, it's all there. This can be accomplished very rapidly within a period of a couple of two to five years if we put our resources in this area. And the idea uh, that I began with is, is the idea I still have, which is that once we know the earliest markers of pre-leukemia, then we can ask the question, why did some healthy individuals get this pre-leukemia even? What made them susceptible? Was there some generic inheritance they had? Or was there some exposure or some um, abnormal protein or microenvironment that was abnormal in their bone marrow. But once we have that, I that recognized, which is which is going to definitely emerge from these kinds of studies, then we can identify healthy individuals at high risk of getting pre-leukemia and then leukemia, and that's how we work our way back to really start focusing on. Uh, targeted monitoring of individuals at high risk, the way we do, for example, smokers for lung cancer. We can do BRCA mutations for breast and ovarian cancer in women. The same way for every cancer, we can develop it. So the tissue repository that I have now uh, amassed together, with uh, it's backed with a computerized uh, clinical pathological generic data bank. It's very unique in that every single cell has come from patients that I have personally taken care of. Not a cell is contributed by another physician. It's the largest tissue bank in the world and the oldest belonging to uh, MDS and AML going back to 1984. I am 
So I have uh, published hundreds of papers, as you said earlier in my introduction, in high-profile journals, looking at one gene, one signaling pathway, a set of things. But what we need is a focused study in a pluralistic manner of all the markers that I mentioned earlier. The proteomics, genomics, uh, the metabolomics, the transcriptomics, all studied simultaneously, sequentially, and then subjected to machine learning. Um, this is what has to be done. So why hasn't it been done yet? As I said, piecemeal, I've been doing it and mm -hmm. I've been publishing papers all over in uh, whether it's Nature or Cell or Molecular Cell or New England Journal of Medicine. Sure, we make these discoveries, but a serious commitment is needed and it may sound like a lot of money, but it actually isn't. What we need is something like um, $100 million, which is nothing if you think about the dividends that it's going to uh, yield. The idea that I have is either you can raise this kind of money from a philanthropist, somebody who is emotionally involved and has the bandwidth to support this kind of work. People ask me, Dr. Raza, why should we give you money and not the American Cancer Society? My answer is, where is the tissue with the American Cancer Society? I'm the only one who has been not only um, obtained the tissue, but I spend a million dollars a year just maintaining this tissue bank. No one supports me. No one funds me for it. There are no grants available to do this. I do it because my patients help me. My benefactors help me. They ask me, what can we do to help you? I say, support the tissue repository. That's how I hold fundraisers uh, to do it. And that's how I've been supporting the tissue repository. So why should you support me and not the American Cancer Society? Because I have all the tissue available, ready to go. We can do it immediately. And... One way, is, as I said, is to go to one single or a couple of or 10 individuals who each give $10 million. The other is, um, and I don't want to scare anybody, Rochelle, but the truth is that one in five cancers which are diagnosed new appear in people who, are, who have survived a previous cancer. Mm -hmm. Like my husband, Harvey, mm -hmm. had one cancer at 34 years of age and survived that, but then got a completely different type of cancer at 57 and died of it. Why? Because whatever was there to make people susceptible to one cancer usually is still there. And if they long and live long enough, they get a second cancer. So one in five new cancers are diagnosed in cancer survivors. Today, there's something like 17 million cancer survivors in America. There will be 20 million in a couple of years. Even if 1 million cancer survivors give just $10 a month for one year, that's it. That's $120 million. That can help me study this entire tissue repository. I am so um, frustrated and anxious about it all the time. Because I feel like we have the answer at the tip of our fingers now. How do we raise the resources to do the work? Why have you, I guess um, some people will immediately ask why there haven't been kind of grants uh, out there to help um, work through some of this, because it sounds like an excellent idea to go through and take this tissue repository and mine it and try and look at what are the patterns that come out when you look at all of these patients whom you've collected tissue from over these long durations as their disease changes over time. Um, so 
why have you found that you've been struggling to get people to donate or to take the goals of your tissue repository and that research more seriously? I'm not sure. One reason, obviously, is that people don't know about it. So Mm -hmm. this is the reason for me to write the book. My goal in writing the book is that I should make it obsolete as quickly as possible because I should do the work. What I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not a writer. I'm not an author. I'm a scientist and an oncologist. I want to do the work I'm supposed to do. The book is just my latest assault in my battle for finding resources to try to do the real work. Why haven't I been able to do it? Because these kinds of grants just aren't available because these kinds of tissue has not been available. I keep writing to the heads of all kinds of institutes, the National Cancer Institute, the um, uh, National Institute of Health, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, everybody I write to. I get very polite responses. Please apply to this grant or that grant. And what is the grant going to give? $250,000 a year for three years. I can hear the frustration in your voice because this is clearly uh, your life's work. And reading the book, you can tell it's your life's work in so many different ways, both as someone researching cancer, but also someone who is very much still a clinician and spends a lot of your time with people who will ultimately die of cancer. And um, that frustration definitely comes out and it, it, it transferred, some of it transferred over to me as I was reading the book because I felt myself also getting frustrated as I read. Oh, thank you so much because the human stories are our stories. They have to affect all of us. One of the, the quotes that stuck with me in your book um, was, uh, cancer is what I'd been treating for two decades, yet until I shared a bed with a cancer patient, I had no idea how unbearably, unbearably painful a disease it could be. And that really, really stuck with me because um, as I was reading through the book, I was thinking a lot about my grandfather who died a few years back, about uh, seven or eight years now from cancer. And uh, while I was reading your book, I was thinking about him and his experiences, but also how shocked I was by what I was reading about late stage cancer experiences. I kept thinking like, why don't I know this? Is this what my grandfather experienced? Like, why didn't somebody tell me and why didn't I know? And it felt like a kind of terrible awakening that there was clearly a part of that experience that I had been sheltered from or protected from, or maybe that had been hidden from me, that I really should know. Yeah, I mean, some some things are unspeakable, Rochelle. And it is, it is now 18 years since my own husband died. I have never spoken about him before. But when I began to write the book, And I started writing about my other patients in such detail about the suffering, the pain they went through, about the emotional crises and the families. Then I felt dishonest and insincere by holding back my own story. Mm -hmm. I felt that if I'm writing about others in such detail, then I have to tell my own story about Harvey as well. And when I began to tell that story, then he, Harvey's story became like a red line running throughout the book. Because at every level, I have experienced the indignities and the pain that cancer inflicts upon its victims. 
and their families. And so it, even my own family, Rochelle, was shocked by reading the book because my siblings, who I'm very close to, did not realize how much Harvey had suffered and what I had gone undergone. My daughter was only four years old when he was diagnosed. And so it was a very difficult period. And uh, it's impossible to talk about some of these things as one is living through the dizzying, disorienting experience. This is why I feel like a very important part of my book uh, is going back to the families of mm-hmm. patients who I've written about and asking them to cast a backward glance on their experience and see that with this luxury of hindsight, can they think about decisions they would have altered, steps they would have taken in a different direction? And patients' families have written very movingly about it, uh, about how they feel now with this uh, elapse of time in between. And unfortunately, the answer we come up with most of the time is that the only answer is that there is no answer, Mm. that we are trying to uh, bring some method, some logic to completely random uh, sequence that uh, of disease and illness and horrible pain and suffering, but that there is this is completely random. Why did they get it? Why did they suffer so much? Uh, and the idea that of writing about all of this is not because I want to revel in the pain. The idea is to liberate ourselves from the pain, to see the human cost and to try to do better in the future. That's the whole idea. And that is why I had to write about Harvey. And it's true that even, I think you picked on the right sentence, that even though I'm caring for so many patients, until I shared a bed with Harvey, I didn't know what this disease is really doing. It's amazing to me that something that is so widespread can feel so hidden at the same time. What do you mean by that? Hidden as in uh, sort of what we both just articulated in that we kind of all know factually that people suffer, but because suffering tends to be profoundly private, only those one or two people really closest to the person who's suffering really get a true window into what that means, I think, because it's it's so personal and so private. Yes, and speaking about cancer, uh, keeping its secrets, you know, I was working at George Washington University in the 80s. And uh, in that period, I started having often lunch with Dr. Ayub Umayya. Mm -hmm. He's a Pakistani neurosurgeon who invented the Umayya Reservoir for delivering drugs into the brain. Mm -hmm. And he was obsessed with everything to do with the brain. So once I asked him over lunch what he thought would be the final level of reductionism needed to cite the root of consciousness, meaning would it be like a physical molecule that is crossing some uh, cell membrane or would it be an electric signal that uh, potentiates uh, something in the cell? Where did he think we would find consciousness? And you know, his answer was so telling, Rochelle. He said to me that, Azra, 
if you took the Taj Mahal apart brick by brick to discover the source of its beauty, all you'll find is rubble. It's the same with the brain. The emergent complexity from simple individual parts actually is what accounts for its essential mystery. And this made a dramatic impression upon me back in the 1980s because I realized that this is the reason why cancer will not yield its secrets secrets through a reductionist approach. Because think of it, one cancer, cancer starts always in one cell that has gone rogue. But this cell is now going to divide far more rapidly than its normal counterpart. So if a normal cell divides in one week, becomes two cells, this cell, cancer cell will become two cells in 24 hours. So it's, it's uh, traversing that journey so rapidly means that it has to double its DNA at such speed that it's going to make more and more copying errors in the DNA. And each error is what's called a mutation. So when one cancer cell divides into two, those two cells now have picked up new mutations. Those two divide in two more and the next four cells have new mutations. This is why treating cancer as one disease is like treating Africa as one country. Cancer is not the same in one place from one day to the next because cells have now acquired new characteristics, which means that they are still dividing and they are still cancerous, but they may metabolize drugs. We give them differently now because of new passenger mutations they have picked up. This is why even something that looks the same, so obvious, a big tumor, that tumor inside itself contains infinite numbers of cancers, thousands and thousands of potential new cancers. And this is why it is sort of impossible to keep ahead of the curve, ahead of the cancer cells and try to develop uh, uh, techniques to target one because by the time we take out the tumor and study it and develop a precise treatment for it, cancer has moved on and has become a different disease because of all the new mutations. And so this is the kind of reductionist, pluralistic approach that I'm talking about. We should just be able to become realistic, realize that cancer is too complicated for us to understand. It's like artificial intelligence. Basically, we don't even know what are the parameters that AI is recognizing to distinguish between two things? We don't know it. We just know that machine learning will eventually be able to do it, but we don't understand how. All we can do is write the algorithms to start that process of machine learning. This is what I'm saying. We don't have to understand every single signaling pathway in a cancer cell in order to cure it. We have to just find the earliest possible algorithm and try to get rid of it then. I think we need to take the blinders off our eyes. We need to see reality for what it is. We need to stop over exaggerating and using hyperbolic language to to describe to the public which is, who is starved for good news in cancer and try to uh, basically delude them into thinking that, oh, a great treatment has been discovered and forget to say in mice. Uh, you know, we have to stop uh, 
using hyperbolic language to call drugs that are improving survival by two months as game changers. We have to stop mollycoddling the public as if they are too vulnerable and should not be told the reality and the truth. Why aren't the uh, oncologists, when they talk about immune therapies using CAR-Ts, why don't they ever mention the fact that the CAR T cannot distinguish between normal and cancer cells? It kills all the cells, and resulting toxicity is so bad that whole industries are arising to try and control the side effects of CAR T therapies. It's just not right to do. I, I'm not saying CAR T therapies shouldn't be followed. All I'm saying is that maybe using the same CAR T therapies in earlier stages of the disease when we don't have kilograms of tumors to kill and maybe making them more specific, finding the right zip code and address for the cancer cells and arming the T cells with them, that's the kind of thing we need to do. We we know what we have to do. We have to just stop this me too, me too kind of approach and keep doing the same old, same old. It's been interesting the last couple of years as I speak to a wide variety of science researchers, uh, authors, investigators, and journalists about different areas of science from medicine to environmental science to climate science. And it feels like we are coming out or slowly starting to come out of a stage of a wider stage in science where we, we've kind of feel like we've squeezed every last bit you can get out of a reductionist worldview. And it, it has been good for us in many places. We've learned a lot by, by that worldview, but we're starting to find its limitations. And it's been interesting to hear other areas of science who are very much looking to zoom out and looking at a more complex view of something that they have mostly been looking at in a reductionist way for a lot of time. And it seems like perhaps we need to do the same in medicine and cancer research. I'm very optimistic and uh, uh, about the future of cancer research because mark my words, Rochelle, no matter what people try to do, that what's coming in all of healthcare, not just cancer, is a preventive approach. We don't have to treat disease. We have to identify and prevent disease. As my friend Lee Hood says, instead of the elderly, we should have the welderly individuals, the well elderly who live uh, to the maximum lifespan that uh, humanity can uh, experience and then die um, without the crippling, horrible, chronic diseases that are affecting us now. How we do that is by identifying the footprints, the networks that are perturbed before diseases become apparent. And we have to start doing that work now to identify those so that 20 years from now, we can at least have implantable devices that can be put under the skin of infants born and that can start uh, the surveillance that is needed for the um, for the targeting and uh, detection of the earliest signs of any disease, not just cancer, Alzheimer's disease, neurologic diseases, mental illnesses, everything should be detected early. 
So just as we end, if there are people listening who are interested in supporting cancer research closer to a type that's close to your heart, uh, cancer research that is focusing on a more complex overview, um, research that is looking at a more uh, preventative, um, more preventative measures. Do you have some places or some shout outs that you want to do for research that you see that should be supported more? I would uh, give a shout out for the tissue repository. I think it would help me a lot if people just give $10 a month, even just for a year. That would be amazing or whatever amount you can give. Uh, my website is available, azraraza.com. You can go on it. There's a donate button. Apart from that, I think that healthy living is very important. Preventive measures and lifestyle changes that uh, guarantee um, uh a good uh, uh, sense of well-being, I think, uh, mentally speaking, psychologically, socially, every way we should try and optimize uh, factors that help us uh, live a healthy life. I think those are all important issues that we should be looking into. Ajra, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really good talking with you. And I, I very much enjoyed reading the book. I, I found it very impactful, and I will remember it. Thank you so much for this chance, Rochelle. You asked very good questions, and I hope that your um, support of this idea of finding cancer early uh, will be reflected in your audience's response as well. Thank you. I'll end by quoting something for you Okay. Uh, from Emily Dickinson. She says, a word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. That's an excellent quote. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about Ajra Raza, her research or her book, The First Cell and the Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last, as always, you can find all those links to click on our website for the show notes in this episode, uh, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 